I will echo my greetings to you today and my thankfulness for you. I want to encourage you today. Uh, we've come out of this time of intercession and we deliberately planned on praying for uh, our OVC family today. Uh, we have some who are away and are out, and um, as were mentioned, I want to encourage you, if you will, to follow up with them this week and let them know that um, that they have been missed, and um, and there may be some need in their life, and something that we can do to and that you can do specifically to help them and encourage them. Um, I know, I, I know most of you well. So I know when you come in here each week, uh, some of you carry some heavy burdens and you come in with uh, having dealt with some real challenges and you're working through the things of life. And here's what I want to encourage you to do today. Uh, oftentimes we can try to mask those. Uh, we will try to hide those. Uh, we won't share those oftentimes for various reasons, uh, none of which I believe are valid reasons, who, by the way. Um, I think most of the time pride drives us to not stop and ask a brother or sister of Christ to pray for us about something specific. So I want to ask you to do this today. Before you leave from here, go and ask someone to pray for you. Here, ask a brother or sister in Christ to pray for you and tell them specifically what it is that you need prayer for. Um, I, I'm going to do that for you now. I'm going to ask you to pray for me as I continue to uh, to try to do all that I do in the course of a week like you. Our lives are busy, but this has been a particularly difficult season of life for me. Uh, we're trying to navigate through caring for my daddy. And uh, I love him. I want to love him well. I want to honor him. He is declining. He's declining rapidly. Um, and not just taking care of his physical needs, but praying with him and encouraging him. And I want you, if you will, just take your worship guides just a minute because I'll not have an opportunity to share this. But our last hymn that we'll sing before we leave, My Faith Looks Up to Thee. And I was reminded when uh, Booney and Elena and Catherine were in here rehearsing as we went through this last verse. Um, When ends life passing dream, when death's cold, sullen stream shall o'er me roll, bless Savior then in love. Fear and distrust remove, O oh, bear me safe above a ransomed soul. That's my prayer for my daddy. Um, that in the midst of all that is going on with him, not fearing death, but fearing the time between now and death. Uh, and the struggles that are associated with that after almost 93 years of life. That all of that will be removed in a moment. And he will enter into the presence of God, a ransomed soul. And that he will find hope in that truth now. Um, Pray those things with me and pray for me uh, as I seek to help him and shepherd him uh, and love him well as a son. If you will, take your copies of Scripture and turn to Galatians uh, chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. <clears throat> This is our fourth message in this series. Um, we have looked at the, uh, the foundation for reflecting the glory of God in a fallen world. We pointed to that 
and said that that is the indwelling of the Spirit of God in us, making us alive. We'll hear more about that today. And then we gave attention two weeks of the formation in our lives for reflecting uh, the glory of God uh, in a fallen world. And we uh, talked about what that looked like. It was, there were three things specifically that we looked at. Is one, that this is a life of continued struggle and conflict. That it is a life of continued growth. And it is a life of continued grace. Uh, today, we are going to begin looking at the fruit for reflecting the glory of God in a fallen world. The fruit that is necessary for reflecting God in a fallen world. I want us to read our text today with that in mind. Galatians chapter 5. And I want us to back up and begin reading today in verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers... Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness, self-control, Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified such things, excuse me, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, uh, some of you are familiar with Jonathan Edwards, uh, early American history, uh, out of the Puritan mindset, pastor, missionary, uh, scholar, um, maybe one of the greatest minds in American history. Jonathan Edwards wrote, The Spirit is the sum of the blessings Christ sought by what He did and suffered in the work of redemption. Now hear that again. That the Spirit, speaking of the Holy Spirit, is the sum of the blessings Christ sought by what He did and suffered in the work of redemption. In other words, the, the, the enabling the believer, in enabling the believer to receive the Spirit of God in him, which is what Jesus was pushing for with his disciples in those last hours said, oh no, and I'm paraphrasing, you need me to go. You want me to go. And you may not know that now, but you need me to go and want me to go because what you will receive will enable you in ways that my physical presence here will not enable you. The sum of of the blessings for the believer. Think about that. How significant is the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer? I ask that question. How significant is it? If you'll recall, our first message, as we spoke of just a moment ago, was focused on the foundation necessary for reflecting the glory of God in a fallen world. 
We said that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit brings life to the believer. And only a person alive in Christ is able to reflect His glory in the way that we are speaking of, in the way that Paul is speaking of, because he says, walk by the Spirit. We cannot walk by the Spirit unless the Spirit of God indwells us. We can't walk by the Spirit unless we are made alive by the Spirit. And only a person who has the Spirit of God in him or her is alive. Paul even writes in that a lost person, though an image bearer and is an image bearer of God, can reflect the glory of God, that lost person cannot reflect the glory of God in the way that we are speaking of. Romans chapter 9 states, as Paul is writing, uh, that a, a dishonorable vessel can display the glory of God. But that is not the kind of glory that we are, are talking of. He writes, you'll say to me then, why does he still find fault? Talking about, talking about God. Why will he find fault if he makes these things and he allows for these things and he makes all these men and sin thus is, uh, is here? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy? which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not for the Jews only, but also for the Gentiles. Jesus points to the fact that the Holy Spirit uh, illumines the, 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 the Savior's face. In John chapter 16 and verse 14, he says, He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit is significant. The Holy Spirit enables us to, enables those who are believers to uh, reflect the glory of God. The Holy Spirit illumines us to the glory of God in Christ. And we read twice last week that the Holy Spirit puts the Father's name in the mouths of believers. By making them sons and daughters, by adopting them, He puts the very words, Abba, Father, in the mouth of believers. It says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we call Abba, Father. Paul wrote that to the Romans in Romans 8, 15. And then in Galatians 4, 6, we read right here in this letter, and because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. I want you to think about that for a moment. Our ability to even call Him Father rests upon the fact that He has placed the Spirit of God in us Therefore, identifying with us in that adoption, sealing us in that adoption, and putting upon our lips the very word Father. No one else can call Him Father. No one but my Father's son and daughter calls my Father Father. No one but you and your siblings, if you have siblings, are able to speak to your mother or to your father, but specifically to your father. No one, no one can call him father but you. No one can call him daddy but you. And in the same way, it is when we are made alive and brought into the family of God through the atoning work of Christ and that adoption that enables us to call Him Father. But that's not all that we hear. We hear that the Holy Spirit plants heaven 
in the hearts of believers. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Puts heaven in our hearts. That's the reason why Paul, when writing to the church at Philippi, said that we are not citizens of this world, but that we are citizens of heaven because the Spirit of God has placed heaven in our hearts. It is our home. That's what we look forward to. That's what we look toward. That's the reason every week there is some aspect of our service geared toward causing us to think about eternity. We sing about it. We read about it. We pray about it. Why? Because heaven has been placed in our hearts, in the hearts of believers. And heaven has not been placed in the heart of an unbeliever. The unbeliever has no hope of heaven. The unbeliever has no longing for heaven. The unbeliever has no desire to want to be in the presence of God for all eternity. An unbeliever may want to not go to hell. An unbeliever may want to not face judgment. They may want to not face hardship. They may want to not face the darkness of eternity and, and being alone in the course of that. But they don't want God. Heaven is about God and His presence. And the believer has that placed in him because the Spirit of God resides in him and her. Therefore, heaven is placed in the heart of the believer. And the Holy Spirit is the one who does that. Now, why are these important? Well, it's immediately clear that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit brings about distinctions in a person's life. Distinctions that cannot be replaced or duplicated in any other way. There are no other ways to bring these things about. And that is true with what we're going to look at over the course of the next weeks. The fruit of the Spirit. Things that cannot be duplicated by any other means other than the indwelling of the Spirit of God. These distinctions... Bear out evidence of this thing. That the person that possesses the Holy Spirit inherits the kingdom of God. Look at the text. What do we see there in verse 21? As it ends with this litany of things that stand opposed to the Spirit, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like this. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, the person who does not have the Spirit of God, the person who lives for the flesh, the person who seeks after satisfying his or her own mind and heart with those things that this world gives that stands opposed to the Spirit of God, those individuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. So for every person here, and every person that you may know, for that person who does not profess the Lord Jesus Christ, there is not the hope of the kingdom of God. In fact, there is the exact opposite. There is the promise that the kingdom of God will not be what they will inherit at the end of their life here. As we begin to look uh, at this text, and this morning I will just tell you, I'm giving a broad overview. Adam is preaching next week. Adam will begin with that very first, with, with, with the very first one of the fruit that's mentioned. Uh, but I want us to look at an overview because there's some things that I believe that we need to understand before we begin to look at these and look at the distinctions that are made here 
in this text and in other parts of Scripture that if we don't understand those, these things, it will make it even harder for us to understand the significance of this fruit of the Spirit that we're talking about. So as we begin to look at this, I want us to look at five distinctions that I believe we need to mention and we're going to continue to resurface. So we won't have to say these every week. We can just refer back here. And if we're confused in any of these, we will misunderstand the significance of this text. The first distinction is noted in the way that the fruit of the Spirit is referenced. Notice, it is the fruit of the Spirit over against the works of the flesh. In other words, the works of man and the flesh over against the fruit of the Spirit. Notice that fruit is singular, singular, not plural. I believe there are two reasons for this. First, it's best understood in a theological concept or term. Uh, how many of you have read a systematic theology book? Some of you have. I know some of you, many of you have. Many of you in here have worked through Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. Well, I want to borrow a word, and Brian and our Connect Group class went through this back a few weeks ago, and I was reminded of the significance of what we're getting ready to talk about now in relation to this text. But Wayne Grudem and, and others like him, when they are writing and talking about God in, this, in, a, in a systematic way, in systematic theology, uh, they talk about the attributes of God, and Wayne Grudem did. And in talking about the attributes of God, they speak of this theological concept. And I want you to get this, so listen. This theological concept is called, by many, the unity of God. The unity of God. And I'm going to give you Wayne Grudem's definition for that. He says, he defines it as God is not divided into parts, yet we see different attributes of God emphasized at different times. The same concept has also been referred to as the simplicity of God, which I think Brian prefers, the simplicity of God. What does it mean? It means that God is simple. He's not complex. He's not the sum total of a whole lot of different discombobulated things that come together. Attributively, He is not that sum total. When the Bible speaks of God's attributes, it doesn't single out one attribute. It doesn't single out one attribute. One attribute doesn't take a position higher than all the other attributes. So for instance, when we read of one attribute, we can't think that it is the only attribute or the greatest attribute of God. So when we read that God is love, we can also in turn read that God is light. And it doesn't mean that He's, because He's love, He's not light. And because He's light, He's not love. It doesn't mean that. We don't have to ask the question, well, which one is He? He can't be both. Well, sure He can. He can be all these things. Because He is eternal, and because He is self-existent, and because He is independent, completely independent, and He is the Creator of all things, then it is only reasonable and logical to say that He is the essence of all things that flow from Him. And all these are held together in one God. So Paul could rightfully say and write, the fruit of the Spirit. Now you'll understand the significance of this as we go on, particularly as we begin to look at these various attributes individually. And this leads to the second point of this difference, and that is since the Spirit of God indwells us and resides within us, that means His character is in us and it is held in the same manner. His attributes are as one. His characteristics are as one. And because the Spirit of God lives in the life of the believer, then the character of God and those attributes are held as one in us. And what does that mean for the believer? 
It means that the fruit of the Spirit will be in us and reflected in every believer. These attributes will be emphasized at different times, but they will all exist in the life of a believer. Now, we stated this in our second week together, but we probably need to restate it here. While they exist in perfection and simplicity in God and by God's Spirit, the Spirit of God is no less God. The Holy Spirit is not a lesser God. When He takes up residence in our life, we don't have a lesser God or a little part of God in us. We have the very Spirit of God and His fullness that lives in us. And by virtue of that, we have those characteristics. And they'll be manifest in us imperfectly, though held perfectly in the Spirit of God. Because as we stated first, and that was what was one of the first things that we wanted to recognize before we moved into this, so we don't sing the little song about the fruit of the Spirit and we move on that we understand the significance of the indwelling of the Spirit of God in us, there is that constant conflict that, that is in our life. There is that constant conflict and war, therefore, that gives evidence of the fact that these are not manifest perfectly in us, but they are held perfectly in the Spirit of God so that we have no less than perfection in us because the Spirit of God lives in us. But they're manifest imperfectly, and there's a constant conflict in our life. That is the reason that there is a continued growth as we are matured in these attributes are being manifest in us more and more as we go. There's a second distinction that I believe is important as I was thinking through this text. There is a difference between the common grace of God and the particular or special grace that saves. This is why this is going to become important. You've already heard us mention that these attributes are the fruit of the Spirit. We need to mention this because any attribute of God is given by Him and is measured and it is demonstrated and it is a part of the grace of God. It can be said that in various ways the common grace covers every person. That the common grace of God covers every person. And inasmuch as every person is a rebel against God, then it is the common grace and patience of God that grants life. In other words, we've said this before, but it rests in, in, in this situation and makes application. Every one of us should have been stricken down at the point of birth because every one of us were born a rebel of God. Shouldn't even exist because we are rebels of God. And yet in God's common grace, He has granted for us to live. So we're all here today and we're all breathing and we're all alive. Just rest, just know this, that if you're here and you haven't professed Christ, you are alive because of the common grace of God. You're not just alive because you breathe. You're not just alive because, hey, I'm in the world and that's what I do. No, you are only alive because of the common grace of God that has been spread upon you to allow you to live. God is being patient toward you. When we say that as unbelievers we deserve death, Rest assured that we are talking about immediate and instantaneous death at the very moment that we have breathed our first breath. We are guilty and we are rebels of God. But the common grace has been poured out. So in this, when we are looking at the Spirit of God being given and we are looking at the fruit of the Spirit, we are drawing a distinction, and we'll get to this in a moment, but we're drawing a distinction in the work of the common grace of God and the specific grace of God in saving us. 
the fruit of the Spirit are flow out of the fact that the Spirit of God indwells the life of the believer and gives him or her life. And there's a difference between the attributes that all image bearers display and the attributes that we are speaking of when we're discussing the fruit of the Spirit. Now make note of that. Because some of you here who've not professed Christ, these attributes, some of them, these attributes are evident in your life. We'll talk about the difference in just a moment. So for instance, a lost person is not rendered to be completely unloving because he or she is lost. Just because you're lost, because you haven't professed Christ, doesn't mean that you won't be loving. It doesn't mean that you won't be patient. It doesn't mean that you won't be kind. It doesn't mean that you won't be faithful. No, as an image bearer of God, created in the image of God, a lost person shares in, in some degree or other, but in various degrees, the communicable attributes of God. As an image bearer of God. So when we speak of, and you get a chance to read and begin to look at communicable attributes and incommunicable attributes, the communicable attributes of God are those attributes that are, that are a part of being created in the image of God. Every person that is created, every image bearer, bears evidence of these communicable attributes. Well, what are some of his communicable attributes? We just mentioned one just a moment ago. Adam will deal with one of the ones that we often go to next week, one of the ones that we immediately go to, and that God is what? God is love. That is a communicable attribute. But notice this. Love is one of the communicable attributes, and it can be displayed in a lost person's life. And how? Well, in all kinds of ways. Husbands will love wives. Parents will love children. Friends will have friends and will have close relationships with them and so on. And in the same way, faithfulness, another loving, another communicable attribute of God will be, will be evident in a person's life. Therefore, it should be expected to see a degree of love, a degree of faithfulness, a degree of patience in the life of unbelievers. So what is the difference? Well, the difference is this. The communicable attributes of God and the fruit of the Spirit, while similar, are not the same. You say, well, how are they different? Well, the communicable attributes can be born by an individual who is lost, who is not alive spiritually, but it is necessarily different when the Spirit of God takes up residence in the life of a believer. Clearly different. Communicable attributes of God are seen and displayed in varying degrees in the life of all image bearers. We've mentioned that. But the fruit of the Spirit that is displayed in the life of those who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit look different. The fruit of the Spirit, and I'm going to just say this, I believe can be said to be an intensified display of these attributes, and there'll be others, other things, but an intensified display of these attributes because of the direct presence of God. I want you to hear that again. There will be an intensified display of this fruit and these characteristics because of the presence of God. I want you to know that it is significant that the Spirit of God lives in the in, inside of me as a believer and inside of you if you are a believer. There necessarily has to be some kind of difference because God has taken up His dwelling place inside of a believer. He has brought spiritual life to a believer. It's not just eternal life and I'm going to get heaven. No, the Spirit of God lives in us. When we look back at Scripture, what do we see? Well, we see 
the awareness of the glory of God in super intensified ways. Think about it for a moment. The awareness of the glory of God was super intensified when Israel being delivered from Egypt set out following a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. There was an awareness of the presence of God and it intensified their ability and awareness of His glory. In Exodus chapter 13, verses 17 through 22, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and, re and then return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses shook the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped in Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day and a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And by night and a pillar of fire to give them light that they may travel by day and night. And the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from them or did not depart from the people. We can recall how the cloud would hover over the tabernacle. And fill the tabernacle. It was a visible sign of the presence of God. And His glory was always associated with His presence. It didn't mean that God wasn't everywhere else. It meant that He dwelt upon that place. And His glory and His presence was intensified. I was watching a segment of an old show the other day, and in the course of the show, there was this part where a man was asked, hey, do you believe in God? And he said, well, sometimes. And then the fellow that had asked the question said, yeah, I know what you mean. He said, sometimes God is there, and sometimes God is not there. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, sometimes he's there and sometimes he's not there. And they go on with this dialogue. And the man went on to tell him, he said, on this particular day, it's clear that God wasn't here because what that man thought God would have done and should have done, he didn't do. But then on another day, what he thought that God should do, he did. And he said, and God was there that day. Well, the fact is, is God is everywhere every day. And He has never not been everywhere, every day. So when God's presence was there with them in this cloud, in this pillar of fire, it didn't mean that He wasn't everywhere. It meant that He had shown Himself there while He was everywhere in an intensified way and His glory was intensified. Well, what does that mean for the life of the believer? Well, if our lives are in fact the temple of God, as Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, it is, and that God dwells in the life of a believer, there would be an expectation, wouldn't there, from Scripture, that there would be something in, intensified in the life of the believer. That the glory of God would be seen and known and shown. In other words, that the person that the Spirit of God lives in would necessarily look different than the image bearer of God where God doesn't live and dwell. And that's the point. We can recall these things in Exodus chapter 19, 9 through 22. We see how at Sinai, where the presence of God comes over this mountain, and the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud, and the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe, uh, believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. And as we read on in that text, we find out what took place on the third day. In verse 16, And on the morning of the third day, there were thunders, and lightnings with a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. 
And then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. And the smoke of it went up from the smoke like the smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke. And God answered him in thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. In chapter 34 of Exodus, Moses comes down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the, of the commandments, the testimony of God in his hand as he came down from the mountain. And Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. He'd been in the presence of God and God's glory had been poured over him so much so that he came back and he veiled his face. We're reminded of Isaiah's experience in the throne room of God in Isaiah 6 as he encountered the glory of God. Why mention all this? Because the same glorious God now resides in the hearts of believers. When we hear walk by the Spirit because the Spirit of God indwells us and we begin to look at the fruit of the Spirit, we have to necessarily know that the manifest, the work of the Spirit in us bringing forth this fruit necessarily looks different than just the communicable attributes of God in the life of an unbeliever. Paul in his letter to the church at Corinth wrote, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Hear that. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You're not your own. No, you are the dwelling place of God. The point we're making and that there is nothing more grand than the glory of God. And here's the thing. The Spirit of God lives in us. And there is a distinct difference between the lost person bearing the communicable attributes of God and the saved person who is indwelled by the Spirit of God. The difference is, is that the fruit of the Spirit are for the glory of God. Display the glory of God. Point to the glory of God. So the love is for the glory of God. The joy is for the glory of God. The kindness is for the glory of God. In other words, the motive behind all that is done and we'll talk about this individually as we look at these individual characteristics. But all of this is motivated for the glory of God because they have been given for the glory of God because they are flowing from the glory of God because it is the glory of God that indwells the life of the believer. And the unbeliever bearing the communicable attributes of God is not so. Glory is displayed but not intensified glory with the sole purpose for glorifying God. The glory of God dwelling in the life of the believer is not just to look so-so. The believer's life will be intensified and the display of the attributes of God will be intensified. Now why is that important? Well, might I come into contact with a lost person who loves and loves well in some ways? Sure. Might I come in contact with kind lost people? Absolutely, I have. Might I come in contact with a patient lost person? I have, many times. In fact, I have come in contact with people who bore these communicable attributes of God, and I'm going to say this, and shamefully on my part, that the communicable attributes of God look better in them than the work of my 
my submitting to the work of the Spirit in me. But I'm growing in those areas. My point is, is that we can't look at these attributes. And if you're here and you don't profess Christ, you can't look back at those attributes in your life to say, well, I, I love better than my friend who claims to be a Christian, therefore I'm as good as they are. No, if you've not professed Christ and trust in the atoning work of Christ, you don't bear the Spirit of God. But in the life of the believer, that should help us see and understand that these things should be intensified in our life. And not just because we want them intensified, but because the presence of God in us necessarily means that they are intensified, driving our motives to bring glory to God. In other words, I'm not loving because I want people to see me as loving. I'm loving because I want them to know of God's love. I'm not patient because I want people to see me as a patient person. I am patient because God is patience and I'm wanting to display that characteristic of patience so that God would be glorified. I'm kind not because I want people to see me or recognize me or say that Jimmy Suggs is kind or gracious or whatever it may be because I want them to see and to know the glory of God in his attributes as they are living in me because the Spirit of God lives in me and they are flowing out of me. Let's look at the glory of God for just a moment as we close. Scripture speaks of the glory of God and this is huge because if we miss this, we are not going to get everything else that we say over the course of the next five weeks. We'll just miss it. We'll have nothing more than a view of, of, of moralism as we look at love, joy, peace, long-suffering, faith, meekness, temperance. God has intrinsic glory. Hear that. God has intrinsic glory. Therefore, the Spirit of God has intrinsic glory. Therefore, the Spirit of God that dwells in a believer and gives him or her life has intrinsic glory the spirit of god has intrinsic glory god said i'm the lord that is my name my glory i give to no other nor my praise to carved idols so god has intrinsic glory glory rests within him because of who he is number two god discloses his glory in creation and there's a progressive nature of this in the way we're going with this god discloses his glory in creation Psalm chapter 19 and verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. It's going to be particularly important. This, what I'm getting ready to say here, is going to connect directly with what Booney will teach on this evening and point us to this evening. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. God discloses His glory in the creation of man. There's a progressive nature of this. He discloses His glory in the creation of man. In Psalm chapter 8, verses 4-5, through 5, What is man that you're mindful of him? The psalmist is writing to God. And the son of man that you care for him. Yet you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor okay so god discloses his glory in the creation of man there's something very special in particular about humanity god discloses his glory in what he does in other words he discloses his glory in his providence so as we sang this morning whate'er my god ordains is right we are saying that the providence of god is always good and right Whatever that is. In my dark hours, the providence of God is good and right. In my hardship, the providence of God is good and right. Well, His providence displays His glory. In Psalm 104, verse 31, May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in His works. What works? Well, Psalm 104 speaks of creation, but there is a broader sense in the course of this that all that God does is right and all that He does displays His glory. 
God discloses His glory in deliverance. We hear this in Scripture. Look, if you will, uh, Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry land. And I'll harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Exodus chapter 14, verses 13 through 18. In other words, he displays his glory in deliverance. Now here's the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we need to see this. That narrative is real. It happened. Moses stood at the Red Sea, he held up his staff. God parted the sea. They walked through. The Egyptians came in behind them. The sea fell in on them and they were destroyed. Biblical narrative. True. But it represents the power of God and the glory of God in deliverance and pointed their deliverance pointed to a greater deliverance that would come. And it came this way. In Acts chapter 3, verses 13 through 16. Messages being preached there after Pentecost. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release Him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead to this we are witnesses and his name by faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all talking about the healing that had taken place and the lame man had been raised up and he was now walking what are you talking about we're talking about deliverance Deliverance on the part of God displays His glory. Every person in here that has professed Christ has been delivered from the bondage of sin. We have been delivered from the damning power of sin to death. We have been delivered and we have been given life and it points to the glory of God. And the Spirit of God that lives in us, that gives us life, now displays the glory of God in our living in this fruit that He makes and bears out in our lives. Believers glorify God. Hear the progression? Man displays God's glory. His creating man. Believers are the ones who glorify God. The 115th Psalm, we hear the psalmist as he sings, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Do you know we come in here and sing every week, and I know some of you have not yet professed Christ, and you sing words of praise to God. I am blessed by it. But it's only a believer that has trusted in the atoning work of God, whose word of glory to God stands firm and sure because God has done His work in Him. We call Him Father because He is our Father. We call Him our Savior because He is our Savior. And while Others may say He is a Savior, while others may call on Him at time as a Lord, while others may pray to Him, and while some may sing a song of praise, it is the believer who declares the glory of God. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 1, After this I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Alleluia, salvation and glory and power belong to who? Turn there. Belong to our God 
Who is able to say He is our God, our Lord, our Savior? Those who have trusted in Him. And then finally, God shares His glory with His people. He shares His glory with His people. He shares His glory with the redeemed. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image. Hear that. Are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is Spirit. Do you get it? The intrinsic glory of God displayed in creation and the creation of man, born out in the creation of man, and the believer is the one who is able to give glory back to Him. Why? Because the Spirit of God lives and dwells in the believer. That is why, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. It is the reason why that one verse of Scripture, two verses of Scripture, are so significant because those are embedded in the intrinsic glory of God. And then finally, in Galatians 5.22, there is a distinction between, there's a distinction between the fruit of the Spirit and the fruit that Jesus speaks of in John chapter 15. I've been grappling with this now for weeks. I read John 15 and I hear that we are connected, a believer is connected to the, the vine. I'm a branch and I'm connected to the vine. I am to bear fruit. That fruit is gospel fruit. That is the way that I live. That is my preaching, my teaching, my witnessing, my sharing. But here, while there is a distinction, note this, is that that gospel fruit is best born, is enabled, is made real. In other words, my preaching, my teaching, my witnessing, my sharing, and all of those things are driven by the fruit of the Spirit living in me, enabling me to bear witness in love, to preach in kindness, to walk alongside of men and women and boys and girls with patience, enabling me to suffer long and hard for the glory of God, bearing gospel witness. And so here we are. The fruit necessary for reflecting the glory of God in a fallen world. I look forward to our weeks ahead as we look at these. Not as just things that we try to get better at, but with an understanding that they are they are the intrinsic nature of the God who lives in us. Believer, should take heart and take courage and take assessment of our own lives. We can read these things in that sense there is nothing more to say. Are those evident? But unbeliever, pay close attention that trying to be these things will not save you. They can't. But they can be borne out in your life, intensified by the Spirit of God, if you trust in Him and trust in His atoning work.
Will you pray with me? Father, I pray that our heart for You would grow in the capacity of a greater realization that You live in those of us who profess You and trust You and rest in You. Would You cause us to consciously be aware of the reality of You living in us as we give attention to our own lives and motives and thoughts as to how we reflect Your glory as Your Spirit bears fruit in our life that is consistent with Your nature and Your character. In Jesus' name, Amen.